went back and like saw, you know, just like everything you do generally, yeah. I know like you have a background in pediatrics mm -hmm. and yeah. other stuff. So, um, and also I just went down like the general rabbit hole of what <laughs> social epidemiology is. Great. And I realized like you cover a really important aspect of the health world in the sense that like, you know, all these other factors, not, it's not just genetics, totally. but it's like, you know, environment and circumstances. But anyway, I'm sure you can speak on all that a lot better <laughs> than I can. If you, uh, I guess, uh, before we like dive into everything, just want to introduce yourself. Yeah, yeah, sure. So my name is Lauren Whisk. I'm an assistant professor in the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Um, and my background is that I have a, a PhD in epidemiology and biostatistics, and I do um, something called health services research. So I'm really interested in understanding how people interface with the healthcare system and how we can do a better job of sort of designing systems of care to sort of service the unique needs. And, and in particular, I'm interested in young people who are living with chronic conditions. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, as you mentioned, do a lot of social epidemiology in addition to chronic disease epi. Um, so really interested in the psychosocial, financial, environmental sort of factors that influence how they manage their disease mm -hmm. and how in turn they need to use the healthcare system as a result. Yeah. So um, a little bit different from COVID, but I think uh, like a lot of people over the past few years, kind of regardless of what your background is, <laughs> you found yourself becoming a, a bit of a COVID researcher. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, in particular, I sort of got uh, involved in this set of projects because my interest in chronic disease epi and, and really thinking about what are the long-term potential you know, chronic disease implications for people who, you know, have been infected with COVID. Um, and then also the, the social epi piece and sort of understanding, again, the contextual factors. So socioeconomic status, you know, background um, circumstances that people find themselves in, how that influences people's risk and, and their trajectory after yeah. getting something like COVID. Yeah. Um, and this is, this is like... One of those, uh, I think you're, you you have one of those professions and, and backgrounds that it's like a gift and a curse for me because like there's a million directions um, that I can go into as someone who wants to know more, but uh, I tend to just get like so like like way too deep into it. But I think like now, because uh, I was thinking about this um, earlier today, even like what your job, like what how would your job be different, and I don't know if it would be different, like if, if we were in a country that, um, where like healthcare was a right, yeah. and like, like is it frust, like is, is there, is it beneficial or like fr more frustrating, like does it go in the other direction for you, like being in, in this country specifically with the work that you do? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I'm definitely interested in the, the financial and insurance pieces of mm. how that like affects how people can access healthcare. And so being in the US in particular, it is definitely very frustrating, but mm. I guess on the flip side, and I feel almost a little bad saying this, it makes it very interesting to study because we have really unique barriers in this yeah. country that we you know don't necessarily see in other places. Um, and so it really allows us to sort of look at what are the policy levers that we have, you know, as a you know, larger society to sort of influence, you know, how easy or hard is it uh, to get access to healthcare and to really better your health. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, from a social pers perspective, you know, our healthcare system is, is not ideal. Um, yeah. We have a lot of problems. And so, you know, it's, it's not great, but um, interesting to study I guess <laughs> yeah yeah no I I can I can imagine and um yeah no that's funny especially something you said earlier I bet like for in the past what three or four years now 
um, the demand to like speak to epidemiologists and virologists um, have been insane. Definitely. Um, I have to say, most people didn't know what an epidemiologist was before yeah. the pandemic. So at least now yeah. uh, people have a better yeah. understanding. I'm proud to say that I did, but only because of the, um, what's the one movie that everyone started watching? Contagion? Yes. Yeah, it's a classic. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh man, dude. I like, I've, I watched like Contagion like 15 times before the pandemic was yeah. even like a thing. But then like when I watched it, after, like when everyone else started watching it again, I was like taking notes and shit and be like, all right, this is what you do when society starts exactly, falling apart. Exactly. But um, yeah, no, I think uh, again, like looking more into, you know, your job, I, I think like the kind of like a side effect of it is like you also have a, in it, like a completely unique perspective on like race, on, uh, um, on what like wealth inequality really yeah. does. And um, I love I love professions where like, you know, on paper you have this one job, but then like it gives you insight into like a million different things. Um, I guess I'm curious, like what, uh, what led you to getting into specifically social uh, epidemiology? Yeah, well, so interestingly, I majored in molecular biology in college okay. um, and thought for a while that I'd be really interested in understanding kind of disease at a fundamental level, mm -hmm. sort of kind of what's happening in the cells. Um, but I mean, and that's, you know, I think very interesting, but you know, when I actually like sort of really started studying it and thinking kind of more broadly, that's not, at least in my, my humble opinion, uh, that's not really where we have, I think the best potential to like actually influence outcomes, right? Yeah. Because, you know, there, there's lots of people who are working on developing a medication and, you know, that's great. And a lot of times that can be helpful, but you know, not everyone even has access to a medication in this country, even if we, let's right. say, can hypothetically cure a disease. And so yeah. thinking about if you really want to make sure we can do equitable outcomes and kind of reach everyone who needs it, you need, you need to think at the social uh, level and think about kind of what are those social contextual factors that mm -hmm. are influencing um, how people get access to care and how people can manage their conditions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's, I think most people would, um, I'm not, I'm not even sure how to ask this question, but I think most people would, uh, you know, would probably consider to be common sense um, uh, for, like, for you to go like, okay, someone with more money would uh, have better care and have totally. better access than someone who doesn't. But um, obviously, it, you know, if it were that simple, uh, you know, people like yourself wouldn't be so in need. So, like, I guess starting with just with that general statement um uh hopefully this makes sense when i ask you like do you would you be able to like peel back the layers of that common sense and what makes your job like difficult yeah so i think to this is sort of an answer to that question in sort of two parts i think it's multifactorial right there's so many sort of sources of inequality in this country in particular um, and a lot of them are correlated right and so the, the correlation between these factors is what makes it sort of empirically difficult to mm -hmm. study um, so from a pure sort of and not wanting to get too much into the actual math but when you have a lot of things that are related to one another sort of being able to you know estimate what is the independent effect of cause a versus cause b it gets complicated so yeah. that's i think wow. one of the things that's really sort of interesting about my job is sort of figuring out how to make the math work and how to set up the studies to to be able to sort of parse that out um but yeah i think the the factors and sort of where we get into the common sense is everything is really multi well not i would say 
everything might be an overstatement, but probably not that much of an overstatement. Everything really is has multiple causes and multiple factors that sort of contribute. So it's not just wealth. It's wealth and you know resources and discrimination and systemic barriers. And there's so many things that are all related to one another. And obviously, you know, if you have wealth, you know, you might have an easier time addressing systemic barriers or, um, you know, you might amass a greater set of assets that you have that you can leverage to address your problems. Yeah. But those things aren't always, you know, 100% related. Mm-hmm. And so it, it does become really tricky to think about what are all the potential factors, how are they related to one another, and how can we really estimate what one individual thing or making a, a change um, and thinking about what type of intervention we might interact yeah. or uh, intervention we might enact how that's going to influence uh, the outcome in a way that we can uh, predict. Yeah, I mean that, so I guess, um, man, I just lost, I lost my train of thought on a, on a, uh, on a quite, actually, no, thank God I remembered it. Um, So, because I was thinking like, as you were talking, I was thinking about like the, the, probably to some degree, uh, the deserved uh, cynicism that a lot of uh, people, especially Americans have for, the healthcare system as a whole. And I was wondering um, if maybe through your work, you have like a, uh, a more nuanced perspective on like the, the genuine, th- there seems to be obviously a lot of people in the healthcare field that genuinely want to make uh, lives uh, uh, or, or make, you know, people's experience with healthcare easier, more affordable, more affordable, a lot more accessible. And then there's a side of healthcare that I think most people, um, uh, deal with in the sense like they, you know, they notice that, uh, things are designed to be as expensive as possible and this and that. So, you know, obviously I, I think the, the, the middle ground is probably, there's a lot of good people in the field that really want to make things easier for people. And then there's this, you know, but then like health being a business, um, I guess what, what, what perspective does your job give you in terms of like the, the, I guess how to, how to actually make things better for people in the system that we have? Yeah. The boy, that's, that's a great question and a really tricky one. So, um, you know, to your point, I think healthcare is a business in this country. And so we're really working with the confines of, at the end of the day, there's mm. a lot of people who have their hand in the pot and they're mm. trying to you know, make money, right? Um, and I, I think you're also totally right when you say that there are a lot of good people who are trying to make things better, um, but also people are working within the constraint of, oftentimes the people who are trying to make things better also sort of benefit from the, the way that the system is structured because you know our salaries are in no small part tied to the you know the money that is made when you know someone comes to see the doctor and right. the insurance pays out right so it's tricky because there's sort of you know perverse incentives right um, maintaining the status quo sort of helps to to prop up kind of the the system that we're working in mm-hmm. but at the same time I think most people do realize that there are a lot of problems with it and want to change it and and I think at the another sort of important point to think about too is the policy piece right because um it's very hard to think about how we can like make a change overnight and and fundamentally alter the system like you know Mm -hmm. maybe i could design a you know one better hospital but like how do you actually disseminate that through the entire country Mm -hmm. that's really where we have to start looking at like federal policies Mm -hmm. and sort of the the federal government has i think a really important role to play in terms of if we want to actually make very large meaningful sustained 
changes. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the other thing. Most um, or a lot of the people who are who are doing really good work, oftentimes their work is maybe localized because that is where they have the most opportunity to actually do something. Mm-hmm. But if we actually want to think you know, big about how we address this, it really has to come from a more top-down approach. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and I guess, uh, you know, since I'm sure a lot of things have changed in the last uh, three to four years, uh, or, or maybe not changed, but I'm assuming for someone in your profession that, like, I think witnessing because as it's happening you're also trying to like collect data from something happening in real time um are there like are there aspects of um of of healthcare or you know even your job that you think um like through your research that maybe just showed you some of like the the bigger picture in terms of like you know problems that people are are facing on a daily basis. I think you know we we heard in the mainstream news. Everyone heard you know certain communities were more susceptible um, to COVID. Um, but I think the way I think it's very easy to think that it, it's just COVID. Like yeah. that these you know before this like they were all fine, mm-hmm. and it's just COVID that's like this massive threat. So I guess like you can probably speak to the state of these communities even before covid and yeah. why they were most most susceptible yeah so that's a great question and so it's so interesting to hear you say that too because i from my perspective as someone who really um has like a cross-cutting theme in my in my research focus on sort of disparities and equity to me the pandemic really just exacerbated problems mm. that we knew were already there mm. and like we knew that there were a lot of health inequities oh. and in issues in a lot of the communities that were worse affected by covid and it just sort of I would say people in my profession sort of see COVID as really just amplifying problems mm. that we knew were were there and we're, we're already trying to fix, but yeah. we just sort of see it blow, blown up um, right. in a very short time scale. And I think on a very like high level because all of a sudden everyone in the world is paying attention to this one thing at the same time. Um, and I think, you know, again, it's going back to this issue of sort of multifactorial. So, you know, there are very clear racial and ethnic disparities, for instance, in sort of who got COVID, who had the worst outcomes for COVID. Um, and I think in no small part that has to do with, um, well, I, we think, you know, there's a lot of uh, essential workers who mm-hmm. are, you know, exposed very early on. Um, and essential workers, you know, come in lots of different forms, right? We're talking about the people who are really keeping the country running yeah. in the early stage of the pandemic. We're talking about healthcare workers. We're talking about, you um, people who are doing like food delivery service. I mean, yeah. I think most people can relate to that. You probably ordered a lot of food at yeah. home. I know we certainly did. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you think of, and, and I say healthcare workers, that's a, a wide range of people. It's not just doctors, it's the nurses, it's the respiratory therapists, it's the janitorial staff at the hospital. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there are definitely sort of selection into those types of physicians. And we know that there are racial and ethnic differences in terms of who takes those types of jobs. And a lot of times that has a lot to do with sort of a long history in this country of the way that we um, create systemic barriers and, and mm. sort of track people. We, I mean, I, I don't really know how else to say it, but we sort of have like a class and caste system in this country in the way yeah. that we sort of predetermine um, people's opportunity based on you know their skin color and, mm-hmm. and heritage. And so we definitely see a lot more racial and ethnic minorities who were sort of in these types of jobs who are, you know, 
still had to go to work when everyone else could, yeah. could work from home and be remote, right? right? And so they were having, you know, really high exposure rates early on. Um, and then I think when we're looking at the worst outcomes, we know that when you have, um, you know, greater exposure to socioeconomic disadvantage across your life, mm. your your body just, you know, physically is actually, you know, more worn yeah. than someone who does not have socioeconomic disadvantage across their entire life. And so when you get sick, it can be worse and, you know, harder to recover um, just because your body is has been through more. On, yeah. a, on a cellular level, we see sort of differences in terms of things like, and, and this isn't, you know, my, my specialty, so I'm not a super expert on it, but even differences in like telomere lengths, like the, the length of the, the ends of your chromosomes that sort of determine how long your cells live, you know, telomeres mm. tend to be shorter for people who have more cumulative disadvantage. Yeah. So really at a cellular level, we see sort of more susceptibility wow. in these communities. And so with something like COVID, it really just, again, exacerbates the things that we knew were there. Um, and, and we sort of see it blow up, um, in a, like I said, a very short time scale and in a, across, you know, everywhere in the country. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, um, you know, I think they did a, uh, a, a well, I guess, you know, maybe it's a conspiracy theorist to think that maybe it's, it was their objective to not, um, highlight the fundamental problems in the healthcare world. Um, but uh, because I, if I remember correctly, I, I think like what was kind of being told because COVID is, uh, this viral infection, um, uh, you know, obviously you, you can get from someone else. It's like, okay, the, uh, these people in these communities, because they have less money, they're more like packed in closely together. And because of the proximity, that's why they're more susceptible to COVID. So like they, they, it, it, it really did it would make someone who knows nothing about like the history or, yeah. or current state of healthcare to just think like, oh, okay, like unfortunately, because this is um, something that you know can be passed from person to person, that's why this is such a a, a, a dire situation for them. But it, I mean, it sounds like with what you just said, it's it's all types of diseases, not just yeah. um, uh, viruses or, or you know and infections. Just uh, uh, I mean, probably literally everything. I'm, yeah. I'm you know yeah. so. Um, and, and this, so this is really cool because, um, I mean, even hearing you say that makes me think, uh, I, am guessing that to some degree you have to know your political history. Um, cause I, I, I'm guessing that it probably falls within your pur purview to know how, uh, policies like over the years on, a, yeah. uh, I guess on a federal level have yeah. affected people. Cause, um, you know, i I've always, I've always, <laughs> I've always felt like when I hear the common American debate anything regarding like foreign policy or healthcare, um, even as a kid, I was smart enough to know that no one really knows what they're talking about, <laughs> you know. So when when people are like, "Man, Obamacare is the best thing that happened to the country, or worst thing to happen," like I just know that like I don't even know where to begin to do the research to know yeah. what that is. So like. Are, are there any key policies over history that you feel like have made like the biggest impact, whether positively or negatively, on on uh, you know healthcare for Americans? Oh my gosh, that's such a tough question. There's there's a lot. I mean, and and so I think I'm going to throw out a term that we use a lot in my field. It's called social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. Like we we really do recognize that you can't just say health policy is the only thing that matters. It's it's 
educational policy, it's social policy, it's housing policy. And like to your point earlier, you're talking about people sort of living maybe in more densely populated areas. Yeah. Well, the reason why that is, is historically we have redlining, right, yep. which takes yeah. place and sort of, you know, puts people into different neighborhoods, you know, based uh, in large part on, you know, their race. Mm-hmm. And um, that causes sort of differences in, in the density and sort of who is exposed to more versus less dense areas. And sort of that housing policy um, historically has led to sort of where people live now and also then change their susceptibility to getting COVID just because of the physical proximity. Um, So it really is a a matter of health in all policies, right? And sort of you can look at a lot of different policies and sort of see the ripple effects and how it impacted health. But if we're really just talking specifically about health and healthcare policies, I would say some of the big ones are obviously related to insurance in this country Mm. because insurance is, um, unlike other countries that have, and, and I should also sort of caveat this because Actually, I give a lecture on this um, every year, and it's it's really interesting to note that there's a lot of different. When we talk about universal health care, that actually doesn't mean one thing. Mm. Countries have very different ideas about how to achieve universal health care. Sort of universal okay. health care is the the goal where basically everyone has access, but there's a lot of different mechanisms or sort of ways to do that, and it looks very different in different countries. Mm. Um, and sort of the way that we've approached it is we have different sort of health insurer insurers or payers who pay for care um and i would say as a result the the payment models that we have set up in this country are one of the the biggest sort of policy uh factors that influence sort of the health system and health outcomes and we see that very clearly there's a lot of studies um where we we make a a clear distinction of actually needing to account for like in our you know mathematical models when we're trying to look at how to to look at outcomes we have to account for insurance. Like, do you have Medicare, Medicaid, private insurance? Mm-hmm. What type of private insurance do you have? Yeah. Um, because it really does matter wow. as a result, like what you have access to. Yeah, yeah. man, that's, um, uh, I mean, I don't know if you can, um, you know, and I, and this is why, like, instead of bringing in a, a, a like a, I guess, um, like a political scientist, uh, I think, you know, being able to ask you, someone who, uh, you know, more than likely doesn't have like this uh, an incentive to promote or you know shit on like any pr- particular <laughs> po- policy in general. Yeah. Like, do you? I guess with like Obamacare yeah. being the uh, correct me if I'm wrong, like the most recent um, uh, just like federal legislation regarding healthcare. Totally. Um, can you, uh, God, you know, and this is great because, like, for once and for all, I feel like I'm finally about to, like, learn <laughs> what, like, you know, everyone is debating. But, like, what, can you maybe state, like, what maybe from their perspective was, like, like why Obamacare even be game? Because they must have seen a flaw yeah. in the system and said, okay, let's promote yeah. this. But, yeah. Yeah, so the the main purpose of Obamacare, and it's actually based on, um, you might have heard something called Romney Care. So in 2007, um, Massachusetts uh, did a a very huge overhaul of their kind of at the state level Mm. of of the way that they decided to structure their healthcare system. And Mitt Romney was the the governor of Massachusetts at the time. And so um, they put together a plan 
with the idea is sort of their way to accomplish quote unquote universal health care was to make sure sort of everyone was insured, whether it was through private insurance, Medicare, Medicaid. And they did that in, in no small part through doing a big Medicaid expansion. And Medicaid is the, the health insurance program that typically covers lower income uh, families in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Obamacare was largely based on this uh, health reform that was enacted in Massachusetts. And um, the... The, the primary goal, again, was improving insurance. That was kind of goal number one. And there's a lot of, like, actually a ton of policies sort of packaged into this one bill. Um, and some of them try to get at this issue of affordability or coverage. Um, mm. But they're actually two separate issues. And, and so Obamacare really was trying to say, we're trying to get everyone insured. That was, like, goal number one. Um, and they did that through a couple num- a couple of you know, specific, um, you know, policy avenues and and just like they did in Massachusetts. One of the ways they did that is we're going to try to expand Medicaid. Mm. Um, and so they implemented a plan to basically, because Medicaid is a state program, so every state implements their own Medicaid, and they do it, every state does it a little oh, bit right. differently. So every state has different yeah. thresholds and criteria for how you can get into Medicaid. Um, and the federal government said, we'd like to sort of implement a universal threshold so everyone under a certain income can get in Medicaid no matter what state you live in. Mm. So it's going to sort of, even the bar, um, because for instance, if you live in California, it's easier to get into Medicaid than if you live in Alabama. Okay. It's, California is much more generous than in Alabama. Um, and the federal government said, we're gonna try to just bring everyone up to the same spot, and we're gonna give states federal dollars to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're gonna fund wow. a large portion uh, of the state's cost to expand the ins- this insurance coverage to different people. Um, a lot, and there was a lot of court cases, um, and basically um, some early court cases said this is actually not something that you can force everyone to do. It can be optional. So mm-hmm. as a result, some states said, yes, we, we're going to buy into this. We're going to take this federal money. We're going to expand our state Medicaid program, and some states did not. Um, mm-hmm. From a policy perspective, that actually is super interesting because it creates what we call sort of a natural experiment where we have you know this really big policy change in some places but not other places, mm-hmm. so you can sort of see what happens as a result of sort of giving people coverage. And it's you can't truly randomize people. Well, we have some some experiments where we have randomized people to insurance, but this was, I think, uh, one of the more, you know, sort of important ones in sort of recent history. Yeah. And so there's been a ton of evidence that has really shown how important insurance is in this country and how the states that expanded Medicaid, especially early on, have much better health outcomes. We have mortality mm-hmm. benefits. We see financial benefits. So fewer people filing for medical bankruptcy. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, uh, better management of chronic conditions. It's there's a huge, huge literature out there looking specifically at Medicaid expansion. And as a result, we've seen more and more states sort of come on board and sort of expand Medicaid after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and I forget what the current count is because um, there's even some that have. have states that have voted to expand Medicaid like in the last few years, but we're, mm. we're not every state has done it. And most of the states that have still not done it are red states in the South. Yeah. So we see, and it's also interesting to note that there are also a lot of sort of geographical uh, disparities and in health inequities. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of the states where we had some, you know, really bad disparities are also these states where they're not choosing to expand Medicaid. Yeah. So also another reason why they're exacerbating sort of existing issues yeah um but so 
Yeah, that was the the primary goal of Obamacare. And it, they did a lot of other really great things. Like one of the things that I have done a little bit of work on is the dependent coverage expansion. Mm. So basically, and again, there was sort of differences um, at state levels mm-hmm. before Obamacare in terms of different states had laws about how old you had to be to stay on your parents' insurance. Mm-hmm. And Obamacare said, we're going to sort of level the playing field and say, across the board, whatever, it doesn't matter what your state says, mm-hmm. everyone can stay on until age 26 yeah. on staying on your parents' private insurance plan. Um, <laughs> oh, actually, just a, in case in case that is bleeding into the interview, just yeah. let people know my neighbor is probably drunk and he's uh, singing... Um, God, it sounds like a, it's like, it's like the vibe of one of those songs from like, um, what's the one movie where they like sing about tea and jam and shit? Um, <laughs> Sound of Music. Yeah. 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 It's like one of those type of songs. But anyway, sorry not to, no, I just, no, if people are wondering like, dude, is like someone like getting like stabbed in the background? Nope. It's just my neighbor, but please go ahead. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So the dependent coverage expansion basically said, if your parents have private insurance, you can stay on it until age 26, mm. um, which is great because young adults happen to be the the age group that had the highest rates of uninsurance prior to Obamacare. Well, uh, what was it before 26? So it was again state specific. Okay. So different states had different rules, and also states oftentimes had specific requirements. Like some states said you could stay on until 26, but only if you were enrolled as a full-time student and mm-hmm. not married and didn't have dependent children of your own or, th- yeah. or things like that. They had yeah. a lot of different sort of stipulations that they would put in place um, to sort of allow you to qualify. But again, very state-specific, a lot of variability. Um, but post-Obamacare, regardless of what your individual situation was, as long as you are under the age of 26, so the mm-hmm. day that you turn 26, you're no longer eligible, but everything before, that counts. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. I, thought, I think my groceries just got delivered. No um, yeah. A lot of shit happening. Yeah. But um, no, I, I got all that. And um, so that that's that's interesting because it, uh, in hearing you explain this, uh, I don't hear any, I don't hear, like, I maybe this is more of like a psychology question. I wonder how many states just didn't like it because it's called Obamacare. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. I, yeah, to be totally honest, I mean, from from a policy perspective, it's it's a relatively conservative set of policies. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they were not trying to fundamentally alter the capitalist healthcare system that we have and yeah. that this is a pay for, uh, we call a fee for service model. Um, they were not trying to fundamentally alter that. They were just trying to say, we're trying to get more people insured. Okay. Um, and, mm-hmm. and again, there were a couple other level levers that they used to do that, like the, the individual mandate, which basically tried to say, we're going to tax people who don't have insurance coverage. Mm-hmm. That has gone through a couple different iterations because of court battles. Um, and then, you know, also they're offering um, like health insurance marketplaces. So mm-hmm. sort of an easier way for people who need to buy individual plans. Let's say you don't get private okay. insurance to work. You can go to the marketplaces and get some subsidies to do so. So there were, there were a lot of things that they were doing, but basically, as I mentioned, the primary goal was getting people insured, but you're still having to pay okay. insurance and pay for the health services that you receive. That wasn't fundamentally changing. Okay. So uh, um, in my mind, it's, it is a relatively you know moderate set of policies, still very good. It did a lot of benefit. This is not to, you know, I'm not saying that to knock it, but um, I think you're exactly right that a lot of the people that opposed it just opposed it because yeah. it was being proposed by a political party that they were not a part yeah. of, even that's, though that's... Yeah, it was based on something that <laughs> was initially instituted by a Republican. Yeah, that is, uh, I mean, that, God, it, yeah, the power of language, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Um, but 
I'm a, this may also makes me think of, um, uh, again, so like one of those common sense things might be like, okay, a rich person can get, um, uh, you know, better care, get it when they need it, when they want it. But um, is there uh, maybe anything like the average person like myself, like, um, is there anything like just like disgustingly unfair uh, like in particular about like being wealthy and having that access like like maybe like maybe something in particular that's just like very different than what like the average person uh, might be able to to get access to that maybe you've seen well I mean I think there are a lot of things but I would say sort of one example and it, it maybe doesn't seem that nefarious and I don't think it is but I think it just really illustrates all the ways that sort of like inequities and, and barriers can sort of permeate and, mm. and it, it doesn't have to do with, you know, a super rich person sort of buying their way into the doctor's office. Like we know that happens, but I just think about like, for instance, like when something happens to me, like if I get sick or I have a family member, because mm. I happen to be a highly educated person who has a very good job where I'm adjacent to a lot of clinicians, I can turn to any of my colleagues at any point and uh, say, Hey, this, this is happening with my my friend, my family member, what are your thoughts or who should I be talking to? And I get, oh. I mean, expert medical advice yeah. from my friends and colleagues. And that's just something that someone who doesn't have wow. a lot of access to, you know, people in that field just wouldn't get. I mean, yeah. you'd sort of be on your own left to sort of Google or hope that the, the person who is covered by your insurance is, you know, mm. going to give you the best you know, medical advice. Yeah. And again, it's, it's something that seems sort of innocent and it is like, I don't, I don't think that it's bad to sort of ask, you know, for that advice, but it's just one of those ways that it's like, I, as a result, have better access to care and services because I have a lot of expert people that I can ask and say, is this the right decision? What do you think? Who should I be talking to? Yeah. Well, you know what? That that should be the perks of being in school for a million, <laughs> a million years. I would do. I mean, God, if I went through school to, I, I would be using up all the perks. If I if I like like was in that circle, just knowing everyone in the medical field, man, I'd yeah, I'd do it all. But um, you know that that does make a lot of sense in terms of. Um, you know, that, that's a really interesting way. And yeah. we kind of heard about that, too, during COVID. Like, maybe people who, even people who were just friends with, like, nurses, mm -hmm. all the way up to the top of people who were, like, friends with people that were, like, on the boards of hospitals yeah. that were, you know, either trying to get a shot first, get out yeah. of that, like, you know, because, yeah, like, a lot of healthy people, young people trying to uh, shoot their way up to the, um, to the earlier, uh, if I remember correctly, I remember, like, it was, like, December of 2020 was like the first few shots yep, and then right. like young healthy basically like anyone under 45 without a um pre-existing condition like we had to wait till like april yeah, may totally yeah i remember i re like people that was like that was the grand like you know flex like who's in your contacts yeah, exactly, and i can exactly. get you yeah. you know um yeah no that was a god that was such a crazy time um you know, actually, no, going back to that time, do, do you feel like you were experiencing it like, well, I mean, you're you, so I guess yeah. you wouldn't know, but like experiencing <laughs> it to like, but differently from, I guess, how you would think the average person that like just kind of thinks all of this, where, where did things maybe seem less random to you because of just how you understand like 
how these systems work, but yeah. like, what was going through your head? Yeah, so you know, it's interesting, a couple different things, because I remember when it first started unfolding and very early on, I remember specifically like a press conference and Anthony Fauci comes out and says, you know, we like are projecting, you know, 100 to 200,000 dead as a result of this, yeah. and this is very early on. And, you know, I am embarrassed to say it, but I will, like I, early on I was like, no way. Mm. So like, no way. And like, I know Trump is an idiot, but like, no <laughs> way he's going to fuck it up that bad. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we're going to have. I'm like, no way. But like, I was horribly wrong. Like, yeah. not only was it that bad, it was so much worse. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, my last sort of, well, all of our last experience with like a, you know, pandemic was I think H1N1, swine flu, mm, right. right? Which was bad, very bad, but certainly not at the level that COVID was, right. and so sort of based on that and thinking about, oh, our public health response and how long it's gonna take to get a vaccine, I was like, I don't know, that seems like, and you know, too, those numbers seem just too high to me, right. but I was totally wrong. And, and yeah, so it was in, interesting from that perspective because um, I think very quickly I started to see, oh no, we're, we don't really have our shit together. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're actually not doing the things that we need to do yeah. to get this under control. And then I sort of, I, I think I switched gears a little bit and became um, a little more informed because I also, you know, was like working on putting studies together and also talking to my colleagues who are, you know, on the front lines and, mm. you know, treating patients. And they're telling me about, you know, we're trying, you know, this therapy or that therapy. And so... Um, and I mean, but I think what something everyone can relate to is, is just how fast everything evolved early mm. on and, and how very quickly it became, I think something that people were maybe rolling their eyes at yeah. to something that everyone was like, wow, this is actually really serious. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I hate to say it, but I think, uh, you know, might've been outdone by the tuba player here. <laughs> um, I, I actually, uh, I like, I, and I do this way too much. I like pride myself for having, um, like one of the more accurate, I guess, uh, predictions yeah. on COVID. And it's only because I'm like, I always tell people like, um, the first thing like I saw about it was back in, uh, February of like early February of 2020. And it was this, uh, um, it was like something out of a movie, like a, a doctor in China, like he was looking through his phone, like selfie camera and was like, I'm telling you, like, this shit is, like, yeah. this is, like, not your everyday flu and that, like, I might even, like, get killed for, for telling people this. And there's something about, like, you know, it's crazy. There's something about someone really saying that and being real versus, like, a great actor delivering yeah. that. Because I, 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 I was like, yeah, like, we, we there's a lot of bullshit on the internet. Yeah. I could immediately tell that this was, like, a real person. Um and then I think like the next thing I heard, um, again, this is like February and the, the Tokyo Olympics is supposed to happen like mm -hmm. July. And I heard that like the committee, this committee was like most likely deciding on not having it. And I was like, man, why would people who manage billions of dollars like cancel an event without anyone forcing them to like this shit must be like because i i guess my mentality early on was like follow the money yeah and i just noticed that all these wealthy people were taking it upon themselves people who are like notorious for not taking a no, taking no from uh, as an answer from the government from anyone were like taking it upon themselves shutting themselves down yeah. i was like okay that's that's it's suspicious, suspicious. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that that was like my because then when everyone was saying like um, two weeks back to normal, 
um, the, the, I just kept citing the whole, you know, the article I read about them, uh, being convinced to cancel an event all the way out in July that the Olympics, um, cause I was like, yeah, that just like, someone's an idiot here. Yeah. <laughs> Either like the people, like the, the guys in t- like that on the Tokyo committee were just, um, completely like way, way, like they, um, totally, you know, got that prediction wrong or it, this is not about to be two weeks. Yeah. And um, I also feel like it just didn't make, um, like, uh, I wish there was like a like a chart or a graph that could show, I feel like an asteroid is the only thing that could be so short-lived that could force the world to like basically put everyone inside. Yeah. Like, it, it would, like what could be so Dramatic. impactful yeah. that would put us inside but only for two weeks? It's like, what the? What? That doesn't, you know, so, um, but yeah, that, that was a, that was an insane time. Um, and I, I guess, uh, so, you know, I guess getting to like, um, your, do you, do you want to, I guess, explain what, like the purpose of, of that, that study that you were a part of was? Yeah. So it's, it's actually a a really large study. So it's funded by the CDC and there's sort of eight sites across the country. UCLA is one. Um, we're partnering with a lot of different universities to basically do what's called a, a cohort study. So we're mm-hmm. trying to recruit um, in total around 6,000 people, um, about three people with who tested positive for COVID for every one who tests negative. And we're trying to f- sort of follow them forward and look to see who develops long COVID um, and mm-hmm. if we can sort of measure sort of what that sort of disease progression looks like, who might be more susceptible, like what are their outcomes, um, and I think that the really important thing about the study that we're trying to do is we're trying to have a control group. So okay. um, one of the things that I think has been super interesting and frustrating about the pandemic is there's been really an explosion of COVID-related research, but a lot of it is sort of, especially in the U.S., we really don't have great sort of infrastructure to, we're not like routinely collecting data on everyone. Obviously, privacy is a big concern, but mm-hmm. um you know, it's, we don't, every time you go to the doctors, they're not asking, um, you know, a whole battery of questions, uh, information that I would love to have if I really wanted to monitor kind of how someone was doing over the course of their life. Um, And so, and also when you think about it too, most people often just come to the healthcare system when they're sick, right? They're not always coming regularly for checkups, right? So we don't always know people, how people are doing until there's a problem. Um, And so, people sort of were using the data that they had. Um, and oftentimes it's just like, we're just going to look at the select group of people with COVID who showed up in the emergency department between this date and this date. So it's definitely a, a selection issue where there's mm. certain factors and forces that led people to show up in that emergency room on that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the studies, you know, can characterize some things, but because we don't have a comparison, it's hard to say, um, do they look similar to if we have a like a comparable group of people who showed up with bronchitis or with RSV or some other you know sort of similar um, you know infection? Yeah. Um, and so what we're trying to do is trying to say we really want to have a control group. Again, we can't randomize people to COVID versus not. Mm-hmm. Um, so we sort of have to do what's called observational studies. So just sort of take who comes in. But the idea is, and because we know. Um, with other uh, infectious diseases, there are long-term um, sequelae consequences that can happen, sort of things like mm-hmm. long COVID. We see this in other diseases. And so our question is, is long COVID sort of 
uh, and similar in terms of the prevalence or the, the frequency with which it occurs to what we see with other um, infectious diseases? Or is there something really special and unique about COVID that makes it sort of a worse mm. um, phenomenon? Yeah. Um, and so that's sort of the point of the larger study. And we have a whole like host of different um, papers that are sort of coming out of that project. Um, and the one that I think that you're referring to that I worked on, I was really interested in looking at sort of quality of life. So not mm-hmm. just symptoms, which are certainly important, but like asking people like, how do you feel? Like, how are you doing? Yeah. How is, you know, your daily wow. life impacted? Um, and it's more of like a squishy outcome, but mm-hmm. we sort of refer to it as patient reported outcomes. It's something that a patient cares about, right? Like, yeah. you know, yes, it's important to ask if you're still coughing, but Maybe if it's a like a little cough here and there, that's not as bad as a cough where it's like truly impacting your ability to like do your job or mm-hmm. you know do your hobbies, yeah. you know, spend time with your loved ones. Like that's a different thing, and so yeah. we're trying to capture that more sort of subjective. Um, you know, how are you doing? And so we're comparing the COVID positive to the COVID negative in, in that domain. Interesting. Yeah, that. So I'm I'm curious as to like. Um, I think we're all kind of familiar with what uh, the the COVID symptoms are. You know, when you're you, you've just newly tested uh, uh, positive, and you know you're for most people going through it, whether for a week or two. Um, were there any symptoms in particular that like that went away, that stayed, um, and it, or or is is or is like what people are describing as long COVID, like does it feel uh, maybe very different than what like the, the maybe the, that first week or two of COVID was? Yeah, so that's, it's a great question. And one of the things that we're trying to answer, and so it's tricky because it's different a little bit depending on the variant. Mm. So, oh, wow. so for interesting, uh, or for example, like early on, I don't know if you remember, one of the sort of the hallmarks of COVID was like the loss of taste and smell. Yes. So that was like very typical that we saw with some of the earlier strains, but much, much less common in the later like Delta and Omicron strains. Yeah. Um, and so for instance, people with long COVID from say like alpha, that's much more likely to be a symptom that they experience long-term mm. um, versus people who are infected later with a different strain. Um, it's something that wow. we see much less frequently. So that's a, sort of another really interesting and complicating factor about all this is because the virus itself is evolving, so too is sort of what we might consider to yeah. be long COVID. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And um, God, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, out of my base here because I, I just I remember – uh, like w- one of the fears as uh, the um, as of like as COVID kept e- uh, mutating was something about like the the spike proteins and then like the um, the effectiveness of the vaccine right. being decreased and then like pop it getting to a point where like it's not effective um, uh, at all. Um, I know that's kind of I mean that's separate from from long COVID, but uh, I guess would you be able to explain? It? That aspect? Yeah. So um, the the mRNA vaccines in particular were targeting this spike protein, which is a unique. So it's a unique feature. My understanding, and I'm not a virologist, so I could be messing this up, but I'm pretty sure this is accurate. Of most of like, there's SARS is sort of a class of viruses, and right. so COVID is a type of SARS, and so this is one of those proteins that I think is unique to this class of, of viruses. And so the idea was 
because it's such a hallmark specific to this virus, and, and typically what you want to do with a vaccine is find a part of the virus that's specific to that virus so you can train your immune system to recognize that and mm. attack that specific virus. It's, the specificity really is key, right? Mm. Um, and so the mRNA vaccines were designed around, we're going to basically create this spike protein within the body so we can train the immune system to recognize it and to attack it. And you're absolutely right, as the virus is evolving, the concern was if the spike protein changes too much, then sort of will the immune system be able to recognize it mm -hmm. based on sort of the vaccine that it was trained mm. on? Um, and, you know, interestingly, we've seen, um, we, you know, we have the, the fourth booster, sort of the people refer to, right, the Delta and Omicron. Mm -hmm. um, but I think for the most part, we have seen pretty, still pretty good uh, efficacy of mm -hmm. the original vaccine against the later strains. And I think the the primary reason for the booster, and this is true for a lot of different vaccines that we do, where we give more than one shot because your immune system, like over time, will sort of dial back the the response. And so we want to make sure, because we're still in an active pandemic, um, that we're sort of keeping our immune system on high alert for this specific illness. So that's sort of one of the main reasons that we mm. do the booster. But then we also have the, again, the more, more recent one to help um, deal with some of the changing sort of hallmarks of, okay. of those, yeah. you know, different strains of COVID. Yeah. I, you know, I, I can't see how it would. Um, I'm curious if like, uh, especially the recent debate on the origin of COVID would, whether that came from like a, a, a wet farm or came from like a lab, would that, some, would, would, um, would the origin of the virus somehow like affect the studies that have been done on it? So really the only way that I could sort of see the origin impacting it was if, if we're talking about this was something that was developed in a lab and they had already developed a vaccine or a treatment protocol mm. um, because it was a, sort of originated in a lab, then that might change things because okay. we could have moved much faster yeah. um but i don't even if we are willing to accept that this was 100 percent like a lab leak i don't think there's really evidence that like they had also developed a vaccine or a okay. treatment protocol so yeah. in my mind i don't think it actually changes things very much mm -hmm. um certainly not from the perspective of kind of you know studying the outcomes because right. that the other thing is at least and this is a tricky subject right because i think we're depending on who you ask, some people are more certain than than others. But I think it's a little bit s still speculation in no small part because, you know, the Chinese government is, you know, not going to accept responsibility one, yeah. one way or the other, yeah. right? So it's it's hard to say for sure sort of what the, what the situation was. Um, but again, unless they had, you know, done a lot of robust, uh, like, animal probably they probably wouldn't do human studies that'd be highly unethical but yeah. they'd probably do some animal studies maybe some vaccine development if they had done if they were that far along then it would be a totally different story but i don't think we have any evidence that that that's the case yeah 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 and that and that's i guess that's a i think that's a a really helpful answer because i i it does it, it made me wonder if if the origin would affect the science itself and um, unfortunately for, you know, again, for epidemiologists and virologists, unfortunately, so many people have invited you guys on podcasts looking for um, honesty on a political level. Yeah. 
And we've, and unfortunately we've also, we have all, like most of the science that we've heard have come from people not in the scientific. So it's like, yeah. it's weird. Like in the past three years, like a lot of politicians have played the scientists, the role of a scientist and vice versa. Um, but uh, at least for our conversation, I just, I'm, I'm just glad that yeah. I can at least like know, you know, if this affects the science at all, but um, man, that's, yeah, that I, you know, I, all I'll say on that just like the whole topic itself in terms of the origin is, is I'm looking forward for the, you know, to the next contagion type movie or, or, or maybe a, even a documentary on this yeah. exact situation to show like what we're really, I, I mean, in, in, uh, yeah, it's going to be, that's going to be crazy to yeah. unpack. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I guess on the topic of uh, of long COVID, um, I was also interested to know like what um, what is it like most uh, uh, when people are describing their symptoms? Is there like something a condition that maybe it's like the most uh, like paired with or misdiagnosed for? Mm. Yeah, so I would say I don't know that there's a lot of misdiagnosis right now. Just just because I think most people, I would say if there's misdiagnosis, I suspect that it would have more to do with someone having something that's not COVID, but ascribing mm -hmm. their like sequelae as being related to COVID. Mm -hmm. um, as I mentioned, like there are lots of viral illnesses that can have like long-term, where you can have long-term symptoms. This is something that we know about. So it's possible that someone could have had something else, but you know, think that it's COVID and, and that. But I think most people, if they initially had COVID and have persistent symptoms, we, we probably are willing to make the, the conclusion that that is long COVID. But um, as far as sort of hallmark, I think one of the more sort of typical presentations of what people sort of ascribe to long COVID has to do with sort of fatigue and brain fog. I think these are the most common, commonly reported symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, and there is sort of another condition, it's called ME-CFS. Um, sometimes people refer to it as like chronic fatigue syndrome which is, it's a little bit of a, I mean, we have sort of official diagnoses that we use to sort of, um, or diagnostic criteria that we use to diagnose this. Um, but it, in and of itself, it seems like a little bit of a nebulous condition because generally yeah. it's people just feeling like a lot of severe fatigue. Yeah. And, and sometimes it seems to, to come on without, you know, a clear explanation. Um, so there's, I think, some overlap between lung COVID and ME-CFS. That's actually one of the things that we're looking at, sort okay. of people reporting or sort of meeting the criteria for ME-CFS um, after having COVID. Um, but yeah, I think one of the, the huge, huge challenges for our study and for a lot of studies is that long COVID itself also is a very nebulous, we don't have a great... Um, way to diagnose it. Mm. Like for a lot of conditions like, you know, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, there are very clear lab tests that we can do. And we yeah. say, if your, your lab value is above this threshold, you have this condition. If it's below, you don't, right? It's very cut and dry. We don't have that with long COVID. We sort of have this list of symptoms, which are very, very common across a lot of different, you know, conditions. And we yeah. say, if you have these symptoms, you know, for at least, you know, the current sort of CDC definition says if you have it at least four weeks after your initial COVID infection, that sort of counts as long COVID. But again, there's, you know, fatigue being one of the, the major symptoms. I mean, I'm tired all the time because of the <laughs> pandemic. Like it's been yeah. an exhausting past few years, yeah. right? So like, like I could maybe meet the definition of long COVID, but like, is it really, like, I, I don't think I have long COVID, yeah. but like if we're just going by 
do you have fatigue and did you have COVID? Yeah. Um, like, I guess technically I might be able to meet that criteria. Yeah. I mean, cause it's, 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 it's tricky to define as like a, as a condition alone, let alone like also figuring out like the degrees of it, I mm -hmm. bet. So, um, man, that, that's really tricky. Like when, when, is this, uh, I don't want to assume that this has been like fully acknowledged as yeah. a, like, like just maybe even worldwide or amongst the, the, the scientific, uh, uh, community, but it, it, at this point is long COVID for the most part, like recognized by most people? Yeah. So, I mean, yes and no. Mm. So I think most people within the medical community realize that there are, for a lot of people, these persistent symptoms after COVID and sort of we, we throw it under the blanket term long COVID, whether that is one thing, some you know, different things, a combination of things is something I think we're still trying to unpack scientifically. Mm. Um, as I mentioned, you know, I think probably some of what people are reporting is due to pandemic and pandemic related stress. Um, and that's not, uh, I, I don't say this in any way, shape or form to like undermine or discredit people who have long COVID. I think these symptoms are like very real. Yeah. Um, but I think we also have to acknowledge that like being very ill in the middle of a global pandemic is bad. Yeah. Right. And yeah. like, that is a really tough experience. And like just that experience might also be causing some of these you know, symptoms. Mm. And so that's one of the things that, you know, we're working really hard to try to tease out is, you know, how much of it might be specific to the COVID infection versus just, it's like really terrible being sick in a pandemic. Mm. Um, and I think there's probably both things at play. Um, and yeah, I think again, because we don't have a very easy, nice like blood test that we can do to test for it. Um, at this point, people are sort of left scratching their heads and sort of yeah. saying, well, you probably have long COVID, even though we don't really exactly know what long COVID is. Yeah. Um, so again, yes, I think most people sort of do accept that it's a thing. There certainly are some people out there who don't believe yeah. in it. Um, I think that's, I don't know, I have to roll my eyes a little bit because <laughs> it's like there, there are people that are very clearly suffering and have symptoms, like something yeah. is going on. Yeah. Um, you know, again, just because we don't, fully understand what it is that doesn't mean it, it doesn't yeah. exist right yeah so um i think it's real and i think there's a lot of people who accept that even if there are a few holdouts mm. yeah yeah you know i i always um I, like i'm i'm uh these it's one of these situations where i'm almost i'm almost like impressed by how like on a psychological level someone can hear like millions of people all describe the same thing just be like you know what no that, yeah. that just yeah, uh, like exactly. like what what in your head gives you this like uh, i don't know boldness is the right word to just be like yeah you know like all of your accounts like not nah, just you know it's just not a thing because yeah. even if you know even if it's like a matter of language it's it's important to like what really matters is that they're all describing the same like feeling yeah. you know and um which by on the topic of language i remember i i can't remember where i heard this but um it uh it was like kind of scary when they they said it was something like uh you know obviously we have uh we use language to define conditions um but like really all we're doing is like um this guy the way he said it was a lot better than what i'm saying he's like really all we're doing is like we're looking at common symptoms and we're like well we've recognized this obviously you know we can diagnose someone with with cancer we can diagnose someone with this but like really 
Um, but he was like trying to highlight the the power of language and yeah. that like really like like the, the what the core of what they know to be true is that someone says, Hey, I'm not feeling well in some type yeah. of way and you're really just giving your best shot to treat like this per like what you know, what this person's coming in for. Yeah. Um but you yeah, know, I guess long long COVID is one of those things that really make you it makes you realize like the power of language in the sense that like, well, all these people are describing really similar symptoms. And I guess we just kind of have to call it long COVID because the one common factor or the, you know, the biggest common factor is that they all had COVID now I'll feel this way. But, um, uh, and it also, uh, kind of related. I remember hearing, um, uh, that like the, something about like, the the way um COVID-19 uh like on a I guess uh like cellular level I'm not sure um that like it had like similar uh similarities to like uh HIV Mm -hmm. and other uh in in what way uh because I I think the way that I heard it it's really confusing yeah so I'm not entirely sure what you're talking about but I think um what well what I maybe suspect might be you might be referring to is so HIV is a really interesting virus because it sort of specifically attacks like the immune system itself and so destroys your immune system's ability to, to identify and fight it which is why it's really so nefarious and we can't you know easily treat it mm. and people can't you know recover from it um COVID doesn't necessarily attack the immune system. It attacks like lots of different tissue types in your body. But one of the things that I've sort of seen is it can trigger a really like outsized immune response. Mm. Right. And so our, our immune system obviously is critically important for, for us surviving um, against a lot of different things in no small part, not just for fighting infectious diseases, but for sort of regulating the things that go on in our own body. Like there's cells that have to, you know, die for whatever reason, and our mm-hmm. immune system sort of takes care of if a cell dies. Like, how do we oh, clean, yeah. clean that up and get rid of the the you know bad tissue or whatever happened? This is all sort of part of the natural aging process. So our immune system does a lot of different things. But um, and you might have heard terms like like you know autoimmune or um, uh, like oxidative stress or things like like antioxidants Mm -hmm. a lot of this is basically referring to um basically your body's immune response and sort of causing outsized immune responses and if your immune system um it can do these things called like cytokine storms so there are these uh, molecules in your body called cytokines which is um one of the things that the immune system sort of uses to identify um you know, maybe cells that need to be removed. Um, but if you have too many of them, it can be really bad and cause the immune system to attack like healthy tissue. Mm. Um, so I think that perhaps that that's what it's talking about. It, mm-hmm. It's the, the, the damage that, that COVID can cause can yeah. sort of trigger your immune system to start doing not great, th- yeah. <laughs> great things and sort of, you know, fighting itself. Yeah, yeah. no, that and I, I, what I do remember is I, I heard those two things, um, compared, um, uh, within the context of, in terms of like how it affects uh, the immune system. So yeah. I think we're talking about the same thing, but, um, and I also think they mentioned something about how it might have like certain property properties of it might also, um, like extend its life in, in the body in similar ways. But, um, God, that was a, again, that was a, this is, uh, what probably a year, 
year ago, year and a half ago, when I was still like doing yeah. deep dives on God, I was spending like <laughs> forty hours a week just trying to learn about COVID. Wow. Crazy time. You might um, know more than I do. <laughs> hey, I well, well, because you know, uh, I think uh, one of the things, like in talking in real time, I like I was just thinking to myself, I was like, man, I wonder how much um, uh, misinfor or disinformation <clears throat> yeah. I've been uh, uh, exposed to in terms of like you know me asking about things that I've seen because like maybe I've just seen like a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> <in> those, <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, no, I mean it's uh, so, and I uh, another thing I appreciate that you did when I reached out to you was that you made it clear that um, you couldn't advise people on, on what to do. Um, that being said, uh, is, have any of your studies shown, like, do we have any stories of people who maybe have done something, like not just like yeah. allowed time to pass, but maybe they did something that like actually helped them? Yeah, so that I think is an area of active investigation. And mm. I don't think that I've seen anything that really is super compelling yet mm -hmm. that like, oh, this is really working for people. Um, there are a lot of different places, UCLA is included in this, where they've sort of started these long COVID clinics, like, you know, like doctors who are specifically interested in, in studying and treating this. Um, and my understanding is that a lot of it right now is mostly just like symptom management, mm -hmm. like looking at the individual symptoms and trying to deal with those sort of pieces of the larger long COVID pie. Um, but I think that is where everyone would like to go and would like to go as quickly as possible is yeah. figuring out like, how do we actually you know treat this? And I, I, I don't want to be at like a Debbie Downer, but it's like I said, it's to me that is something that we're struggling with. And, and I think we're maybe not as close as I think a lot of people would like to be in again, in no small part, because long COVID is we don't really even have a great way to, to measure it right mm -hmm. now. Again, like I said, there's no blood tests. So we're sort of grasping at straws and people come in with different presentations. I mean, there's definitely these, these hallmark features that everyone shares, but yeah. you know, there are lots of cases where it's a little bit different. And so thinking about, well, why is it, you know, slightly different for this person versus that person? Um, and I think those are things that we really need to understand in order to say, okay, now how do we treat it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah man. Uh, long COVID, it reminds me of like, uh, you know, I've, we've all met people who, um, uh, there's, there's a curse of like having something that, is definitely disruptive enough for you to not be at a hundred percent like you know for sure that like you are like a full level down from where you could be but it's not like bad enough for really anyone else to give a shit unless like you're really trying to get help on this yeah. thing um and that i that that's got to be so frustrating because um, it's it's there's um in, in a way, it, I feel like people can help you better when you're at 20% than when you're at like 80% because it's yeah. like, fuck, what are we even looking for? You seem right. to be fine, but right. yeah. Um, God, that that's tough. Um, yeah, you know, so we, we've like, you know, everyone's heard from like people in finance. Um, uh, how long, like, you know, of a, how big of an impact has COVID made on, on the, the world economy and mm -hmm. how long it'll take to, to recover? Um, are there aspects again, through like your profession that you feel like from your perspective, is there anything uh, that you feel like will take us a long time to recover from dealing with COVID? You know, I, I, I do. I think we're going to be, I think one of the things that we still don't know is a very much an open question. 
um, is like, what does long COVID look like after 10 years, after 20 Mm. years, right? And does it get worse? Does it remit? Like, we just have no idea. So I think we're going to be dealing with this problem potentially for a very long time. And I think sort of one, you know, example that always comes to mind is chicken pox and shingles. So chicken pox is, and this is going to be very much a generational thing because I was old enough where I got chicken pox when I was like in you know elementary school, but mm. younger people might have gotten the chicken pox vaccine, so probably didn't have to deal with this. But um, and maybe people have seen like uh, TV commercials for the shingles vaccine, but mm. shingles is basically the chicken pox virus. You were exposed as a uh. child, and then oftentimes it sort of reemerges, and this is it's mo- more common in in seniors, so older people. Um, but it comes back and it comes back like with a vengeance, like oh, all of a sudden wow. they get this new infection, like with a very bad rash and it can be life threatening in some, you know, circumstances. Mm. Um, so it's just one of these cases where we see a virus that sort of lays dormant and can pop its head back up and cause a lot of damage down the road. Mm. And that's one of those things like COVID might do that. Like yeah. we have, we have no idea because like the earliest mm. infections only happened in 2019. Right. Yeah. And so we're, you know at most, not even four years out. Um, And so we just don't know sort of what's going to happen over the long term. So I do think that we're going to be dealing with this potentially for a very long time. I hope not. I really hope not. I hope that's not the case. But um, I think we have to be realistic and and expect that it might, we might have to look at something like that. Mm. Yeah. And um, I guess, uh, um, you know, closing out on this, on the, uh, you know, is, is there... I guess anything maybe that uh, I've left out or that we've left out in terms of like maybe is there anything that's just like absolutely just like glaring that you feel like the general public, maybe even politicians or just people in general like like did not see whether during COVID aren't seeing right now with like like maybe the aftermath um, any like major major things. Um. I mean, I feel like there are a lot of things. I think <laughs> I think the hardest thing, at least for me, about the, the pandemic is that it was so politicized early mm. on, and it really has never been truly about the science. And obviously, I'm a scientist and t- biased toward, to caring about the science. But like for me, I think it would have been great if very early on we could really focus on what is this virus? What is it doing Like at the molecular level? Like How do we treat it? You know being a little bit more rigorous and systematic in how we were sort of tracking people and we could have maybe detected long COVID a little earlier if we were doing a better job measuring. Um, we maybe could have mitigated the damage of long COVID if more people had gotten vaccinated earlier. Um, but because of all these you know, outside political factors, yeah. it sort of has complicated everything in a, um, a really negative way. Yeah. Um, and and I, don't, I don't say that to like you know, put the blame on like individual people. Like obviously people have to make up their own mind about whether or not they want the vaccine. But um, I think if we had, it's it's easier if we had a little bit more control over some mm. of the, the factors that are, um, that might be contributing to why some people experience worse outcomes than others. Yeah. If that's, I'm trying to just say it in a, as polite a way as I possibly yeah. can. Yeah, no, I understand. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, you guys... I think everyone in your community deserves, uh, you know, um, like an award for just having to deal with the the politics side of of what you do. Because, um, you know, I, I imagine 
it's not like they, they train you in, in medical school to um, uh, juggle the politics along with your, your research. It's probably like a, well, welcome to the real world. It's like you can do your science, but like here's who funds it, here's who this and that, and there's all this other bullshit you have to deal with. So, but um, yeah, I can only imagine the, the amount of patience that someone like yourself had to, uh, I guess, have you know, in the last yeah. three years. Yeah. Um, but, uh, anyway though, I, um, you know, again, like the, the way I am, I just get like a billion more questions, but yeah. for the, the sake of time, I will, uh, I'll let you go. But, um, man, this is, this is for me, this is such a cool conversation. Cause I, I think, um, you know, uh, obviously we talked about specifically like long COVID and, and other aspects of your job, but I think like the, it's, it's, uh, I'm always fascinated by people that, like because of your job you're able to see the world in a way that like as a tuba player like, i'm just <laughs> not going to so um yeah no i i really appreciate you taking the time to, to be on the podcast yeah Thank thanks you. for having me it's been really fun yeah thanks um and for people listening as usual uh, made it all the way to the end always thank you for that yeah no this is a song called life and we're out peace